0: So that must mean something. (laughs) (laughs) Genesis chapter 6 and 8, but Noah Noah. found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Look to the screen one more time, Luke chapter 17, verse number 26. And as it was (coughs) in the days of Noah so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. Wave to somebody before you're seated. Wave to somebody. Smile a while. Give your neighbor a rest. (coughs) Many of the prophets, perhaps all of them, but To be safe, I will just say many of the prophets were able to peer uh, into the future. And while they uh, did not understand everything that they were seeing, they foretold of events and of things that would be understood by those that were alive when those events or those things came to pass. The purpose of previewing these prophetic events within the Word of God is to awaken, to alert, and even to warn God's people uh, in very specific periods of time. A prime example was when Jesus uh, was alive. They could revert to the prophecies, Messianic prophecies concerning him to verify who he was, uh, born of a virgin in Bethlehem, different things, to validate his identity. We're going to come back to this later, but an example of this is when Jesus said, when you see these things begin to come to pass. And then he finished that statement that we will draw upon in a few moments. Obviously, he was not speaking to his generation. He was speaking to a future generation of believers who would, in fact, recognize the things that he was referring to there uh, that was coming to pass in their lives. And by those things that were coming to pass, those prophetic events, they would know that that time that Jesus spoke about is hand, a perfect example of an Old Testament prophet that falls into this particular category of seeing events but perhaps not understanding them uh, with great precision would be Joel. So he wrote in the second chapter of his uh, prophetic book, verse one: "Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain." Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh. But then he said, for it is nigh at hand. Look about what he said. It's coming. It's coming, not here yet, and yet it's nigh at hand. He's saying, to you that are here in front of me are going to read my words tomorrow. It's coming, but to you that will read my word at a different period of time, it is nigh at hand. This prophecy has both literal and spiritual implications affecting the nation, the natural nation of Israel, as well as the New Testament church. Not only did Joel attest to the fact that the day of the Lord is coming, he said it's here, it is nigh at hand. And so he ardently commanded those who were responsible to blow the trumpet in Zion. He commanded those who were responsible to sound the alarm in God's holy mountain. But he commanded them to do this without delay. To do it now. To do it without delay. In reference to natural Israel... These trumpets were to be blown in the highest point in Jerusalem, which, of course, would have been in Mount Zion, the fortress of Zion. And those sounds would cascade down from the fortress of Zion, down from the mount uh, called Zion, and it would be heard throughout the entire city of Jerusalem. There's no point of sounding an alarm if people are not able to hear it. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying unto the churches. And so the purpose of blowing the trumpet in Zion and sounding the alarm in God's holy mountain is twofold. First, it is to wake up the mighty men and to alert them to prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. It doesn't matter how mighty they are if they're not ready for war. It doesn't matter how well they've been trained if they're not prepared for battle. So the alarm has got to be sounded in a particular and specific time to wake up up the mighty men. We know they're mighty. We know they're anointed. We, they know, we know they're strong in the Lord. But something has got to wake them up. Secondly, it was a call to all available men of war. All available men of war. Those within the sound of the alarm to cause them to draw near, to come up under the mount called Zion because something is getting ready to happen. All available men are being called to the mount. All available men are being called to wake up and get involved in what God is getting ready to do. Joel then gives the following admonition in Joel 3 and 10. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. I've always loved that. I always loved that passage. Let the weak say, let the feeble say. Let those that are convinced they can't do anything say, I am strong. With the sounding of the alarm, the entire city would be put on high alert. Thus, it was written, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 14 and 8, For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to battle? Joel said that it was time that the mighty men and all other men of war, every inhabitant of the city within Jerusalem know with certainty that something very profound It's getting ready to take place. That is the reason why the alarms are being sounded. The purpose of prophecy is not merely to illuminate. It is not merely to educate, but it is to prepare the people of God in that hour, in that time, to get ready for what God is getting ready to do. To prepare yourself for what? is coming or perhaps what is on the horizon the church the redeemed of God the blood-bought of Jesus Christ we have been given a rather extensive list of prophetic occurrences so that when we see these things we will know with absolute certainty that the Lord is coming very very soon these things uh, uh, are being witnessed by all of us on a daily basis. They are they're saying that the uh, fire in Hawaii, they're calling it apocalyptic. Ladies and gentlemen, there are signs, there are signals, prophetic things that are occurring, and they are so that we will know that the time of the end of the church age is near. Jesus told us in chapter 24 of Matthew, beginning in verse 4, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines and pestilences, and earthquakes in diverse or in different places. So I want to tell you that the timing, the intensity, and the frequency of these events, of these prophetic occurrences, will occur proportionate to the nearness of Christ's return. I'm telling you, it's only be going, it's going to get stronger. It's going to become more frequent as we draw nearer to the coming of the Lord. The combination of celestial, political, and natural signs that are occurring in our world today is Joel's prophetic warning and awakening to God's people. It's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. At the conclusion of Christ's exposition on end time events, in Matthew 24, he said in verse 33, so likewise, when ye shall see All these things know that it is near, even at the doors. He is walking toward the gate of heaven, and Gabriel's getting ready to shout the voice of the archangel. I'm telling you, we are at the door of his coming. The Lord reminded me just here, standing here, about the the law of frequency. Because we've been seeing these things now for a long time. The law of frequency means that they really have lost their impact upon the church. New converts get it. But some of us old-timers are so Accustomed to these things that we have lost the shock factor, I suppose. The signs that Jesus spoke about are occurring in our world today, and they are intensifying. They are becoming more frequent, and I believe and you will concur with me that it leaves no doubt that the return of Jesus Christ is imminent. Every dispensational transition that has ever occurred happened in the company of prophetic events. When a major transition, for example, was about to take place in the kingdom of Babylon, Belshazzar saw a large hand writes something upon the wall in his palace. While he didn't know what it said, there was something, something about this that deeply troubled him. Daniel is brought in to interpret the strange writing that is upon the wall, and he interprets the writing in the following manner. God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. The kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. But the reason that I mention this is because of what happened next. Daniel chapter 5 and 30. In that night, that night, not three weeks later, not six months later, But that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain. One of these days, we're going to hear a word from God, and it's going to be this night. This night is when I'm going to split the eastern sky. This night, you will not wake up from the morning like you normally do. This night, I'm going to descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, one of these days you're going to hear a prophetic message about the end time and it will be the last message that you hear. Peter said in 2 Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Luke 21, 28, and when these things begin to come to pass, then look up. Lift up your heads for your redemption draweth night. the disciples stood on the Mount of Olivet. Jesus ascends up into heaven. The angel said, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? But there's a time when he says, all right, it's time now. That's where you need to place your gaze. For them, you got you got something ahead of you. We're living in the end time. We are days, weeks, months, perhaps hours from the coming of the Lord. And there's something about the spirit of prophecy. This It's time for you to begin to look up. Get your eyes off of the world. Get your eyes off of money. Get your eyes off of your career. Get your eyes off of all this stuff. Begin to look up into and gaze into the things of God. Change your focus. Change your focus. Obviously, this is not to be taken literally. It's hard to drive if you're looking, well, even if you have a skylight. We have one, didn't ask for one, they put it in there anyway. It's hard to look up and do anything, get anything done. So he's not talking about literally walking around and looking up, but he's talking about being acutely aware, constantly, continually aware. That the coming of the Lord can occur at any moment. Peter wrote of this glorious event in 1 Peter chapter 4. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? I cannot think of anything more terrifying. ...than to know that the Lord has come and I did not go. I cannot think of anything in this world... ...that would be more terrifying than knowing I have missed the coming of the Lord. He came and I was not ready... You see, that's what it means, judgment's going to begin right here. It's going to start right here. He's going to begin judging the world from right here because there are going to be people that were convinced they're all right, that they're saved, that they're going to heaven, and yet they were not right with God. Something was wrong in their spirit, in their attitude, in their life, and they did not make the rapture. So I think that these words should not be taken lightly. Paul admonished believers at Philippi. He said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I've preached it through the years, but it's been a long time that there's not much fear and trembling in God's people anymore. I understand we need to trust God for our salvation. I get that. But in that trust, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. And the knowledge of our God says that if he judges me for what I deserve, I'm in trouble. I'm in so much trouble. Jesus was serious. Very candid when he said in Luke 21:36, watch ye therefore and pray all ways that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Ladies and gentlemen, we are not going through the tribulation. I, I don't, it, we're not. We are going to escape all these things according to Jesus Christ. And I will present further uh, evidence of this in a few minutes. But the word watch means that we need to be awake. Now, uh, when we have all night, or we used to call them all night, but they didn't go all night, so we called them late-night prayer meetings. We've had all-night prayer meetings and late-night prayer meetings for years, years and years and years, long before this building was built. We'd meet in homes and pray all night. Lay the kids down, put them to sleep and pray. But there was a point. That I'm just talking about me. There's a point where there's not enough coffee to keep me awake. <laughs> I am serious. There's not there's not enough caffeine in this world to keep me awake. When my body says, You're going to sleep, and you're going to sleep now. So I understand that we are in that quiet light, hour. Of a dispensation. And the spirit of slumber is so very strong. The spirit of slumber is upon God's people, gnawing at them. What we used to call the sandman is beating us wanting us to let up on our prayer lives and to let up on our worship and to let up on our consecration and, and don't worry about this and don't worry about that. Just live your life and, and enjoy life. Just sleep a little bit. Just slumber a little while. Everything will be all right in the morning. That's all right for some people, but Jesus is coming as a thief in the night when people slumber, when they sleep, when they get really tired and weary. So that word, that word awake, or that word watch means to be awake. Whatever you got to do, you got to stay awake. You got to pray when you don't feel like praying. You got to worship when you don't feel like worshiping. Because a lot of times you're not going to feel like it. I love it when the Lord lays out the red carpet. His angel's sitting there waiting for me in the prayer room. He's sitting there waiting. I arrive, and oh, my God. But then there are days when nobody's there and the door's closed. I spend my time knocking, I guess. And you all know exactly what I'm talking about. We need to be attentive not only to our surroundings, to what's happening in our world, But we need to be attentive to the things of the Spirit. James 5, 8, 9 says, Be also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. He wrote that nearly 2,000 years ago. I really doubt seriously that it was meant for the people at that particular time. It's meant for us. It's meant for this generation, for this hour. (laughs) Verse 9, Grudge not against one another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door now we have give reference today to a litany of things a litany of prophetic signs that strongly indicate that the return of Jesus Christ is imminent we didn't elaborate on the pestilence the famine the wars but we mentioned them and 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 we don't have time to elaborate on them but we've talked about them but what i want to do now i want to introduce to you a sign that the lord is coming very soon and the chances are you've never heard this from an apostolic pulpit before i didn't get this from brother morgan i didn't get this from uh, any other uh, apostolic preacher that's that's on uh, YouTube that we listen to frequently. I can list a, a, a lot of them right now. But I'm going to speak to you what I feel the Lord has given me as one of the most prolific signs to the church in this hour that His coming is imminent. For this, we have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. And we know from the Bible, from reading the Bible and studying the scriptures, that when Lot and Abel, uh, or when Lot and Abraham separated. Uh, Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom, and eventually he inched his way closer and closer till finally he moved right into the midst of Sodom, and there he lived. Genesis thirteen thirteen says, "But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly." So, without question, the wickedness of which this is speaking is referring to the sin of homosexuality. I'm aware this is being broadcast online. If we can't say this publicly, we need to shut our doors, turn off our lights, and go home. This is where we stand. It's what we believe. It's the word of God, and it's never going to change. Now, we also know that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, and he did so by raining down upon them fire and brimstone. But the story of the destruction of these two cities and of the entire plain within which they sat uh, did not begin when the two angels arrived there. It began much sooner in Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, when the Lord appeared unto Abraham, that's who him is, in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and, lo, three men stood by him, When he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground. Uh, Two of these men were angels, and one of them was the angel of the Lord. It was a theophany of God. He was manifest in the form of an angel. And the Lord informed Abraham of his intent to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and we all know the rest of the story. But an important feature to this account, is the deep depravity of Sodom and Gomorrah that it was not, I repeat, it was not a recent social development. They did not just stumble on the sin of homosexuality, lesbianism, and and that kind of depravity. It had been going on there for some time, for many, 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 many years. So I believe that that there's a, a, a question that we must ask. Why now, God? Why have you decided now at this time that you're no longer going to allow Sodom and Gomorrah to exist? You're going to remove them from the face of the planet. And there's nothing going to be left there except a burnt mark where those cities used to exist. After all of the years they have lived in this wicked depravity, why have you decided now to destroy These cities? I believe that the answer to this question reveals this prolific sign of the coming of the Lord of which we speak. Because after Abraham's prayerful intercession, ten righteous people cannot be found anywhere within these rather large cities, the Lord sends these other two angels on ahead. And they're sent there to Sodom to warn Lot to get out, to remove yourself before the judgment of God falls. When they arrived in Sodom, Lot immediately noticed these two strangers had entered the city after dark and feared for them because he knew what was getting ready to take place. So he brings them into his home, even though they didn't want to go in, they did. Genesis 19 and 4, but before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, where are the men which came in? to thee this night bring them out unto us that we may know them now you know that scriptural wording for something else lot went out the door unto them shut the door and he tries to appeal to their better judgment said i pray you brethren do not so wickedly but as this mob attempted to seize on 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 lot And due to him, what they said they would, they were going to do to these other two men. These two angels pulled Lot into the door and smote everyone outside of the house with blindness, so that they couldn't. They just ended up just wandering off and stumbling off uh, into their own particular and personal darkness. But herein is what I believe that after potentially hundreds of years, God decided at that time to end their reign of wickedness. The men of Sodom and the men of Gomorrah had become radically militant in their sin and in their lifestyle. They were no longer content to practice their abomination behind closed doors. And when that shift occurred in them socially and spiritually, When that shift occurred among these wicked sinners, God decided I will no longer tolerate them to live in the world that I have created. The LBGTQ movement has devolved into a confrontational, belligerent, and aggressive crusade demanding, not asking, demanding that we accept and that we endorse their ungodly and perverted lifestyle. I saw this several weeks ago, and I was appalled by it. I thought it was a one-time occurrence. Come to find out, this has been occurring for a long time, for several years, within the major cities of America. It is where they have gay pride parades. And men that are dressed in drag. You know what I see when I see a man dressed in drag? I see a demon spirit. I see a devil standing before my eyes. That's what I see when I see a man dressed up like a woman, smears face with all that stuff. But what they do at gay pride parades, they have been marching down the major thoroughfares of our cities, chanting, we are coming for your children. If that does not get God's people on their knees, nothing will. They're chanting in their demonic ungodly garb, we are coming for your children. If that's not enough, if that does not rile the church of the living God to action, That's not enough to invoke the wrath of Almighty God. They mock the Creator by taking hostage the rainbow, the sign of the covenant that God made with Noah, that he would no longer destroy the world by water again. They have taken the rainbow, have stolen it, and they've made it the emblem of their depravity. They are mocking God. in their bold in their reprobate audacity they have chosen pride if it wasn't so serious it would be laughable are you kidding me that's how reprobate they are they've chosen pride to signify their rebellion against god and you know it's going to lead to their own destruction. But when placed within the company of other prophetic signs, I am convinced, ladies and gentlemen, Church of the Living God, this is God's final warning. This is getting ready to happen. Judgment is getting ready to fall. I'm getting ready to come. I'm not going to put up with this for very long very long. If you think we've got many years, you're thinking wrong. The message of the spirit right now is I'm getting ready to come and you better get ready. We are now surrounded by a culture and a world that God will soon no longer tolerate to live. Romans 13: 11 and 12 and knowing and, and that knowing the time, that now it's high time to awake out of sleep for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night, what night, the prophetic night is far spent. The day is at hand. What day the day of the coming of the Lord? Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, let us put on, The armor of light. My God, I have just concluded part one of today's message. I now present to you part two Genesis chapter six. Two verses of scripture, verses 5 and, or actually 3, I guess, 5 through 7. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air. For repenteth me that I have made them. What we are experiencing right now, right now, in our world and in the culture that is all around us, is an exact replica of the world that we just read about. We're experiencing an exact replica of the antediluvian world. That's the pre-flood world. The temperament of mankind in the days leading up to the coming of the Lord is undistinguishable to that of Noah's day. If there's anything that's been identical, this is it. Now, we can make this association and we can make these comments with extreme confidence because of what Jesus said in Luke 17, 26. And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days... Of the son of man. So today. In the world that we live in. Violence. Blind rage. And hatred. Is dominating our world. Just like it dominated. Noah's world. And so God said. I will destroy man. Whom I have created. From the face of the earth. I want you to. Uh, I do a homework assignment. Right now, there's over 8 billion people in the world. Uh, hypothetically, if the Lord come today, go read the, read the book of Revelation, and tell me how many people you think are going to be alive at the end of that seven years of great tribulation. With the horses of the apocalypse and, and a worldwide army, one army numbering over 200 million soldiers. Tell me, how many people you think are going to survive seven years of tribulation when they are, it is so bad, they're running to the rocks and the mountains saying, fall on us and hide us from him who sits on the throne. So the Lord God made this divine and irreversible decree And yet it says in Genesis 6 and 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Didn't change his neighbor, didn't change his city, didn't change the world, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So in this highly toxic world, and due to the proximity to the coming of the Lord that we are I'm sure that we could compile quite a list of things that we feel like we need from God in order to ensure our safety, the safety of our family. And so that we could safely navigate through the turbulent waters and the shark-infested waters of the end time, we could make a list, my lands, we could we could sit around here after church and we come up with a long, long list of things that we think that we need in order for us not just to survive but to thrive in the midst of days like these. I imagine that if we mentioned grace to you, that it would not get you too excited. We have been involved with the element and the benefit of grace, many of us, for many years. It is the reason that we're here. It's by grace we are saved. We're not unfamiliar with the divine, unmerited favor of God that rests upon each of us. So if I'm telling you God's going to give you grace, you're going, wait a minute, we already have that. And yet, what he gave Noah was grace. Right after it's written that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, God spoke to him and says, Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch, Genesis 6:15. This is the fashion which thou shalt make of it. The length of the ark shall be three hundred cubits. The breadth is fifty cubits. The height of it thirty cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and a cubit shalt thou finish it above. And that door of the ark thou shalt set to the side thereof. The lower, second, and third story shalt thou make. As soon as Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, God said, "Now get to work." Now, go to work. I'm giving you grace, but you can't sit on this grace. you got to do something with this grace. So you see, what many people do not understand about grace is that grace comes with a set of instructions. We're the end time church. We 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 are those that it's written. We can see the day approaching. But God is giving the church the blood, blood, the born again something. The same thing that He gave Noah. He is giving us His grace. But grace comes with a set of instructions. There's a cheap version of grace that's being preached today, uh, and that's. Uh, kind of grace causes people to be lazy, causes people to be prayerless, causes people to be unfaithful, causes people to be worldly and even sinful because they're told that grace will take care of it all. I'm glad Paul wrote in Romans 6 and 1, what shall we say then shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? He wrote to Titus 2.11, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us, teaching us, teaching us, that denying ungodliness and worldly lust. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. It's an ugly world. It's a lost world. It's a sinful world. It's full of depravity. But thank God for his grace that teaches us how to live. <laughs> Romans 2, 4, and 5. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. So I feel the presence of God. I guess, I guess I'm okay. It doesn't mean you're okay. It's his pathway to repentance. It's his pathway to an altar of prayer. Verse 5: But after thy hardness and a penitent heart, treasures up unto thyself wrath. Against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. He's talking about the coming of the Lord, church. What we've just read describes perfectly the grace of God. It's the riches of God's goodness, his forbearance, and long suffering, all of which leads us to repentance. I think I'm all right what do you think God I think I'm good what do you think God I feel like I'm all right if you go by feeling you're gonna miss God because feeling will lie to you you'll feel like you're all right when you're not amen because you feel the presence of God everything must be all right no that's God he's trying to get a hold of you he's trying to lead you to a place of prayer And once the grace of God has led an individual to true, heartfelt, genuine repentance, it teaches then the importance, the necessity of living soberly, righteously, and godly in an ungodly world. I know I don't have the time, but I, I need to say it anyway. Part of the Lord's prayer is, Lord, forgive us of our debts as we forgive those who are indebted unto us. You know what the Lord showed me recently? We pray that prayer and we forgive those who in the past did something to us. That's not talking about just those in the past. It's talking about those that are doing things to you right now. Right now. <laughs> current betrayal. Current <laughs> feelings that are being hurt because of a number of different things. Things that people are doing or saying or not doing, who knows? So Hebrews 11 and 7 leaves us with these words by faith. Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. Church, this is not the time to fall into despair. It's not the time to recoil in fear and to hunker down. It's not the time to abandon the high and lofty standards that grace has brought to us and has taught us. And so that extraordinary endowment of grace that was given to Noah was good enough for him to make it through a flood that would cover even the mountains, the highest mountains. And if that grace was good enough for him, it is good enough for us. It's good enough for you and for me. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. I, I must hurry. Unto the angel of the church in Thyatira, write these things, saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. He said, I know thy works and charity and service and faith, thy patience and thy works, and the last to be more than the first, notwithstanding I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest, sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent. That was grace, ladies and gentlemen. I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. When God pronounced judgment upon the antediluvian world, it came with a time limit, came with a time limit. Even as Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, hear me now, that grace had an expiration date. Genesis 6 and 3, the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his day shall be 120 years. From the time that God pronounced judgment upon the world and the means in which he would send that judgment, there would be 120 years that would elapse between his pronouncement and the first drops of rain that would fall upon this unsuspecting world. In Genesis 5 and 32, it says that Noah was 500 years old and Noah begat Shem, Ham, And Japheth. Then in Genesis 7 and 6, it says, And Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. What does all of this speak to us today? It tells us that there is a space of grace. And ladies and gentlemen, we are in that space right now. It tells us that Noah did not have an unlimited time in which to build the ark. Take your time, Noah. I used to believe that God withheld the rain because it talks about long suffering and waiting in the days of Noah. He waited for Noah. But I used to think that God would not. Send the flood until Noah was finished. No, God's going to send the flood, Noah. It's up to you to get ready. It's on you. And so if you look at this, it makes this event, building of the ark, even more remarkable because within 100 years, Noah had three sons. There were three weddings. They had to grow up. And he still had to build the ark and be done with it by the time God sent the flood. And so the grace that God gave unto Noah, this is important, placed him within perfect alignment with God's time. Now, we don't know the time. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour. We know he's coming in an hour when you think not. But the grace that God is giving us today places us in perfect alignment with God's timing for the rapture of the church. Not that we're going to know it. No man's going to know it, but it places us in the awkward position that we're in, not knowing the win of it all. It puts us in perfect alignment with God's timing if we can If we can experience this space of grace, we have nothing to worry about. If we will just remain in God's grace. So we are in that space right this moment. And while the challenges before us will be great. God's grace contains everything that we need in this hour. Everything that we need right now. Matthew 24, 38 for as in the days that were before the flood they were eating and drinking marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. I find it interesting that Noah knew the flood is coming, but when Shem, Ham, and Japheth brought a girlfriend home, Noah welcomed him. Welcome home, glad that, glad that you're going to be a part of our family. And Japheth said, "I want to get married." Noah didn't say no. The flood's coming. No, he said, "It's good. That's a good thing, Japheth. Get married. See, we're not going to quit living. We're not going to. We're not going to quit working hard. We're not going to quit." Marrying our children off to godly men and women. We're going to continue living, but we're in that space, and we have to understand that God's getting ready to come. And so they were doing all of that, and verse 39 says, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man There is a holy hush among us in this room right now because you're important to God. This church is important to God. Our mission is important to God. Our purpose and reason for existing is important to God. And so while the world is oblivious, I know they're talking about it, but it's just all talk, it's jabber, it's chit-chat. They really don't believe what they are saying. But unto us, the grace of God is speaking as it did to Noah, and we had better be listening. 2 Peter 3, 11 and 12, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner? What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Looking far and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. Wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Hebrews 12, 25 to 28. See that we ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape. If we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven and this word. Yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Right, God. Worship team, uh, thank you for all that you do. Would you please come to the platform? In the few minutes that I have to close, there was something that God wanted to teach all recipients of his grace that I, um, I think for centuries and even millennia, you see, When God gave grace to Noah, that wasn't the first time God extended grace to someone. But it was a predominant influence and factor in why and how Noah and his family would be saved from the flood. But I believe there was something about grace that man in all of his studious Vigilant understanding was still hidden from man. And God wanted us to know about uh, this particular feature of grace. And so to reveal this, to accomplish this revelation of grace, he chose a stalwart apostle by the name of Paul. And this vital lesson would require Paul to be taken to the very limits of his endurance. Everything that he had uh, been through would pale in comparison to this. Everything he had experienced, all of the pain, all of the rejection, the beating with with rods and the stripes on his back, the imprisonments, the fastings often, and, and all of the things, the stoning, everything that he had experienced up to this point would pale in comparison to this. So it's written in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse seven, lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. There was given unto me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, Paul joined in. Therefore will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God Wanted you to learn something, but he took it on Paul to teach it to you. God wanted us to learn something about grace, and he placed it on Paul to get his message across. My God, 2 Corinthians nine fourteen, and by prayer for you, which long after you for the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Thanks be unto God for this indescribable gift. This grace that we are still trying to sort out and figure out and we've got this little short lame definition, the unmerited favor, it's so much More than that, the unspeakable gift of grace now rests upon the redeemed of God in this hour like it did on Noah in his day. And make no mistake about it, God is going to have his way before we leave. God's grace, you can stand with me. I am I'm almost done. God's grace enabled Noah. I didn't cite the dimensions of the ark. You've heard that before. Some of you have been to the ark encounter. It's. Are you kidding me? A man with three sons built that thing and it, it didn't sink like a rock? I mean, the fact that they could build it's one thing, but that it floated on heavy seas, heavy, rough, wind-torn seas, and it didn't break. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, if Noah can build the ark within concept of God's grace, we can do anything. Cause that grace now rests upon us and it is sufficient for this hour. They can come for our children but they're not gonna get them. They can come for our saints, they're not gonna get us. They can put us in prison, they can't take our soul, they can kill the body, they can't kill our soul. Ladies and gentlemen, the grace of God rests upon the church in this hour. And it's time that we hear the prophetic alarm that Joel said needs to be sounded. 2 Corinthians 9 and 8, God is able to make all grace abound toward you. That ye always, having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. Does that mean no more problems, no more trial, no more tribulation, no more pain, no more sweating, no more weariness? No! But in it all, the grace of God is sufficient. <laughs> Timothy was pastor of the church of Ephesus, and if you read the letter to Ephesus, in, in uh, the book of Revelation, they were a fearful people. And God wrote this to Timothy because uh, Timothy was a little fearful in one place. He said, stir up the gift of God that is in you, Timothy, that was laid hands on you by the presbytery. Here he says in 2 Timothy 2 and 1, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in the grace. It's not your strength. It's his grace. Be strong in that grace. Then again, 2 Timothy one 7 through 72-10, For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Morton Bustard, a one God, Jesus' name, apostolic prophet in our midst, it says, all right, you want to listen to five or 10 or 15 minutes of the news, that's fine. Turn it off. You know why? Because it will fill you with fear, anxiety. It's, it sucks the faith right out of your soul. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to what? The power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. But is now made manifest, saints, this is to us. By the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to the light through the gospel. My God. What are we we supposed to do, Bishop? We're supposed to do what God tells us to do, even though it appears to be absolutely impossible. We have to do what God is leading us to do as a church, even though it is beyond the realm of our understanding. We have to be obedient to the Spirit of God. Now listen to me before we come and pray. You are going through things personally. I understand that. You personally as an individual are, are going through hardships and you're struggling. You're fighting your own personal battles and, and it's easy and here's where the enemy comes in. you got enough to deal with. Don't worry about the church. Don't worry about the kingdom of God. you are dealing. You got enough to deal with. You just worry about your stuff. It's a lie of the devil. You're going through your stuff. God's people always did. But the church is going to go through stuff, and it's going through stuff as well. Five years we've been waiting for a company to finish their job that, that we started. Five years we've been putting up with that. The church is going to endure things. You can't get lost in your own personal struggles and isolate yourself from the people of God and from the work of God and the church of God. God is going to take us through together. I don't know how i don't know how we're going to get the job done i don't know how it's going to play out but i know the grace of god is sufficient for this church to have apostolic revival right here in fort myers the grace of god is sufficient for us to break this thing loose and fill every chair in this auditorium the grace of god is sufficient for us amen, to have spiritual breakthroughs in our prayer rooms, have spiritual breakthroughs in our altar services, have breakthroughs in our worship services, have moves of God when we gather together inside of these four doors. The grace of God is everything that we need. And I want you to bring yourself to this altar. We're going to come and stand. You can kneel if you want. There's nothing wrong with that, but I want us to come as a church. I didn't plan on it but I feel in the Holy Ghost that's what we need to do we need to come and gather it's God's people the person on your right you don't know what they're dealing with the person on your left you don't know what they're fighting against you don't know what kind of struggle that they're enduring you don't know what it took for them to be in the house of God right here today but we're gonna stand together the church of the living God, and we're going to declare that God's grace is sufficient for us. God's grace is what we need right now for God to give us the breakthrough that we are praying for and that we are believing for. Within that grace of God, there are prophetic trumpets that are sounding in your own heart and mind. I believe that the men of God of this church has been hearing those trumpets sound for some time. You have been ignoring them and letting somebody else answer the call, but not anymore. The men of God in this church is gonna answer the call of Joel's trumpet. The Bible says at the last trump is when he will come. Right now, the trumpets are sounding. The trumpets are sounding. The warnings are going forth. We're not going to ignore them. We're not going to go on as everything is normal. We're going to pray for spiritual breakthroughs. Come on, can you hear it? I've been hearing it for some time. I've been hearing those trumpets sound for a while now. Come on, you've got to hear it for yourself. you got to hear it in your own spirit. you got to hear it in your own soul. Hallelujah, Jesus. you to tell God what are you calling me to do come on ask him God what are you calling me to do come on be specific God what are you calling me to do come on men come on men of God what is God calling you to do The church needs to rise up. We need to push back in the spirit. We need to push back in prayer. We need to tell them not my city, not my kids, not my church. You need to push back in the Holy Ghost. on us that's greater than their sin, it's greater than their depravity Uh, I haven't heard the message I've seen that uh, Brother Smith Pastor had you watched that YouTube video about altar working it was my brother Smith I see that he's preached the message and the title of it I, I want to steal his title so much and preach it. the title of the message is tell hell I'm not coming. Oh, I want so much to preach that. Come on, people! The days of wishy-washy Christianity is over. There is spiritual warfare being fought in the very streets of our city. Heaven suffering violence and the violent taken by force. We need to talk to God every day but every morning I got a message for hell as well as heaven. Hell I got a message for you. I got a word from God for you. Hell about three or four weeks ago Brother Morgan preached in Stockton, California, a message that, with permission from our pastor, I want everybody to see it. It was entitled, Take the Battle to the Gates. Take the Battle to the Gates. Ladies and gentlemen, we are supposed to possess the gates of our enemies. When do we do that? We do it when we're in prayer. We own these gates, devil. Witchcraft doesn't own them. Homosexuals doesn't own them. Devil worshipers don't own them. Nobody owns these gates but the redeemed and the righteous of God. And if we don't take the battle to the gates, they will take the battle to our gates. The most when you're weary, when you're flustered and frustrated, when you're exhausted, when you're drained, when you've prayed that God would put an end to it, but it keeps on going anyway. When do we need God's grace? We need God's grace to take this city for Jesus Christ. I'll tell you this and I'll let you go. Brother Morgan said that there have been visions, men of God have had visions that they've seen a light, a bright, brilliant light that started in Los Angeles he goes across the I-10 corridor all the way to the East Coast, and he said that's getting ready to happen. So he said, "I am, I am choosing eleven men." And he turned to Brother Haney, asked him to be one of the eleven. He has, he has flown to Pensacola, and he has chosen what's that pastor's name? Kenzie, I never can think of it. Brother Kenzie Bryan to be one of the eleven. And these 11 men, when they're, when they're chosen, they will begin to meet and pray prophetically how they can bring this to pass. This light that's going to come across the i He's talking about a wave of revival that will begin there, but it will come to us. Ladies and gentlemen, we need the grace of God to be a part of this. I don't want to see it next door and over there and that city and that. I want us to experience it right here in our church. And we can because of God's grace. I want you to tell at least three people today that you love them before you leave the auditorium. Wives don't count, husbands don't count, kids don't count. Tell at least three people, go ahead.